0: Um, There's a man named R. Scott Clark. He's a a pastor and an author and a a seminary professor out in Southern California. Uh, And he recently wrote an article entitled, Choose Your Metaphors Carefully. The church is a pasture, not a business. Just listen to the opening bit of this article. He said, 35 years ago when I began seminary, the church growth movement was hitting its stride. In a course taught by an adjunct professor with a Harvard MBA, we were taught how to be efficient in the way that successful CEOs were. Later in the church growth literature with which some pastors and churches were then inundated, and in some cases still are, we were told that the old metaphors for ministry were old-fashioned and must be replaced. Instead of talking about sheep and pastures and pastors or shepherds, We should begin thinking in more sophisticated urban categories. Pastors were told to model themselves after chief executive officers. He says, I recall a pastor saying to me, I'm not a pastor, I'm a rancher. It was a clever way to retain some of the agrarian flavor of the biblical language while turning the image on its head. He said, we were supposed to infer that this rancher was too important and too busy overseeing the whole spread, to strain the metaphor, to look after individual head of livestock. Rather, like a successful rancher, he checks out his flock via helicopter and satellite. He has hired hands who actually handle the livestock and their problems. And then Clark continues, and he says, some years ago one of my colleagues pointed out two great problems with this trend. First, it turns scripture on its head, And secondly, the metaphors are not innocent. Metaphors are not innocent. They carry a message within them. When a a minister, and that title is significant, when a minister identifies not as a servant, which is what a minister signifies, but a boss in a prosperous-looking glass tower, he's not translated the biblical image to late modern urban life. He's changed The biblical picture. Jesus, our Lord, God the Father himself, was familiar with cities. He was crucified, Jesus was, just outside a city. Not by country bumpkins, not by farmers, but by the urbane, the powerful, the sophisticated. Nevertheless, he consistently invoked Jesus over and over again. Invoked agrarian imagery agricultural imagery to describe the relationship of himself to his people. So, for example, in Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus says to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In Matthew chapter 20, he compared himself to the owner of a a vineyard. Another agricultural image. But he never compared himself or his servants to corporate moguls. The writer to the Hebrews, the preacher of the book of Hebrews, he, he, um, as he begins, as he ends actually the book of Hebrews and really at the beginning, he blesses the, the ascended and the, the glorified Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. The Apostle Peter describes Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of your souls, and he also calls him the chief shepherd. Later, Peter will exhort the elders of the church to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, as we've looked at John chapter 10 several times over the last few weeks, I've mentioned places like Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34, where the authors proclaim essentially, and Explicitly in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And so then we come to today's passage and Jesus' statement in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I want to take a moment to just read this passage together again, um, John 10 verses 1 through 18. The reason that we do this, the reason that I read kind of a lot of scripture um, in the service is that we are commanded to being devoted to the public reading of Scripture. Paul tells, instructs Timothy very clearly about that. And we believe that God's promise of Isaiah fifty five eleven will come true. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, God says. God's word is powerful. It is living and active. So John chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, this um, allegory and explanation. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning as we look at your word. Give us ears to hear. Help us to understand and be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began this section of Scripture where Jesus makes, I think, one of his most famous I am statements, this I am the good shepherd. We spent a a bunch of our time kind of focusing, especially at the end of the service last week, at the end of the sermon, on that one word, good. What does it mean that Jesus is good, that he is the good shepherd? Well, it's because he knows and is known In fact, he says in verses 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And we also know that he is good because unlike those hired hands there, Jesus cares for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But that's not like Jesus. Jesus stays and he tends and he protects and he cares. We also saw that Jesus is good because he sacrifices. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now this is pretty much where we uh, left off last week, where we finished, and where we're going to pick up this week, that the shepherd is good because he sacrifices, and he says this four or five times in this passage. I want to point them out to you again, that he lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14 starts with, I am the good shepherd and it ends with, I lay down, at the end of verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. The end of verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. Now, the setting here... Jesus' audience, those whom he is talking to, is almost certainly uh, the Pharisees that John mentions at the very end of chapter 9. And then he broadens that slightly there in the next verse, in verse 19, when he tells us that the Jews, that is the religious leadership, they have some conflict over what he teaches and, and, and here in this passage. And so we can be sure that they did not understand his teaching on this. They didn't understand at all what he was talking about. Um, We can see this clearly. uh, We can. We can see this clearly as a prophecy about the crucifixion and the resurrection. That he lays down his life for the sheep. But they didn't know what he was talking about. At the time that he said these words to them, I'm sure that nobody understood this. Um, it's easy for us uh, with uh, having all of revealed scripture and, and, and having a pretty good grasp on revealed scripture. It's easy for us to, uh, to jump from the, a humble shepherd in the allegory in the first few verses to Jesus to the cross because, because we have the New Testament that ties those things together. But when they were looking for their Messiah... When the people of Israel, when the Jews and the, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, when they were looking for their Messiah, they were looking for a king, not a shepherd. They were looking for a new David, but ironically, they were looking for a new David in the same way that their ancestors had looked, for, had looked to Saul as king. They wanted someone who would, stood, who would stand sh- uh, head and shoulders above the Romans and could lead them into battle. And Jesus said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. They weren't looking for that. They wanted a king. This is the work of the Good Shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures. This is the work of the Good Shepherd who leads us beside still waters, who restores our soul. This is the work of the Good Shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And He he does this by laying down His life for the sheep. I'm not not great at titling my sermons. Um, Usually I do the bulk of my studying on Thursdays and Fridays, but I put the bulletin together and the songs and whatnot on Wednesdays, and so I have to come up with a title on Wednesdays. I think in the bulletin I just put the shepherd part two. Um, If I was better at this, by the time I put this all together and was finishing it last night, um, I probably would title this one For the Sheep, For the Sheep, because that's what we're going to look at today. Really, we're actually going to look at one word, that word for. And what this means here, that Christ lays down his life for the sheep. I mentioned at the very beginning here that there are are many who want us to use different metaphors in place of a shepherd. But I'm not going to insult your intelligence like that, to say nothing of flipping scripture on its head. And because metaphors are not innocent, because they mean things, we can all understand, really, the picture that Jesus is painting here. But we get the big picture of this, of him being a shepherd for the sheep. Even those people who were listening to him understood that, that generally speaking, the, the shepherd, most shepherds living in any time period really, not just, not just the ones in ancient uh, Israel living 2,000 years ago, but most shepherds living pretty much anywhere pour out all of their time and their energy. And, and as any shepherd or really any kind of farmer can tell you, at times he will pour out his entire life, his entire well-being for the flock, for the herd, for the land. When it comes to the good shepherd, when it comes to the Lord when it comes to the I am here, I am the good shepherd, his for the sheep is so much more than that. It's so much more than just simply pouring out his life as any hardworking shepherd would. But it's not any less than that. And so this morning we're going to look at three meanings behind this statement that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm going to give you all three right now so that You can see where we're going. Then we're going to go over each one in a little bit more um, detail. So the first meaning behind this, I'm going to give it to you as a full sentence. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep to protect and safeguard his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep to protect and safeguard his sheep. The second one is the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in order to purchase the sheep with his own blood. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in order to purchase the sheep with his own blood. And then the third, and we'll get to this right at the end, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in order to be their vicarious substitutionary atonement. Sound it out. Vicarious substitutionary atonement, their substitute. So we'll start at the beginning with the most common, I think this is the one that most people think of when they think of the vocation of a shepherd. And I think this is the one that is stressed here, and the others are there and very prominent, but this is uh, where really we're going to spend some time. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in order to protect and safeguard his sheep. Or to say it simply, the good shepherd lays down his life to protect his sheep. Remember here, the good shepherd, in the allegory, those first five verses of this um, chapter, he stands over and against uh, the opposite. Really, Jesus is comparing himself to the Pharisees. And so even in these last um, verses, what is it, verses 7 and 8 through verse 18, and when he mentions the hired hand there in verse 11, 12, 13, he is over and against the hired hand. So in other words, in this section, Jesus is comparing the good shepherd, the I am, with the hired hands, who when it comes right down to it, they don't really know the sheep, they don't really care for the sheep, and they're certainly not willing to sacrifice themselves for the sheep. And so when they are attacked by wolves, the hired hand leaves and flees, but Christ lays down his life in order to protect and safeguard. In fact, in verse 10, he says that they may have life and not death. This is where the I am part of this statement, I am the good shepherd, where that I am is so important. Because in claiming deity there, in claiming God's personal name for himself, in claiming the name that most English translations of the Old Testament translate as the Lord, all caps, Jesus ties the imagery of a common shepherd, a common sheepherder, directly with the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd of Israel. The shepherd who sees and protects. I'm going to draw again for a moment on Psalm 23. Because we're so familiar with that psalm, with that statement, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That word shepherd in Hebrew, and often actually in Greek when it is used in the New Testament to refer to pastors, it's a verb, it's active, it means to feed, to tend, to care for, to protect. The Lord is my shepherder, we would say, I shall not want. And so we could translate the first verse of Psalm 23 as something like, The Lord is my watchman protector, I shall not want. And it seems a little more active to us in English to translate it that way. When David wrote Psalm 23, when he used the imagery of a shepherd, and it's all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, when he used that imagery in Psalm 23, he wrote this as a man who knew what he was talking about. I think I gave you at least part of this a couple of weeks ago, but this is David's resume, his list of accomplishments that he gave to King Saul as he was asking for the job of defeating Goliath. It's 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 to 36. David says to Saul, "'Your servant,' meaning himself, "'used to keep sheep for his father.' And when there came a lion or a bear and a lamb, uh, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. David says there that he had defended his father's sheep against lions and bears. And Jesus says that he will defend, the good shepherd defends his father's sheep from wolves, from predators, who snatch the weak and scatter the quick, which would leave them defenseless and as sheep without a shepherd. Often when we think of David as a shepherd, we think of him and refer to him sometimes as a shepherd boy, which to our ears might seem like a term of derision or a a put-down. Isn't that cute? The cute little shepherd boy running around with a little baby lamb. We shouldn't do that. There's a reason that young men, often those in their teens and maybe early 20s, there's a reason that they're the ones keeping sheep. It's not because they're immature, although sometimes they are. Uh, We've been reading in Genesis... Joseph was 17 when he was keeping his father's sheep. Joseph was running around interpreting dreams and getting into trouble with his big brothers. We've been studying that in Sunday school. But the real reason that young men are the ones out there keeping sheep is because it is physically demanding work. They would be out in a pasture miles away for days at a time, watching over and protecting the sheep from all kinds of dangers. All kinds of dangers, toils, and snares, including predators. If I could give you a, a kind of a personal example from this church, I think of how hard the young men in this church work. We have an abnormally high amount of young men in this same age group—late twenties, early or late teens, early twenties—who work incredibly hard. They work long hours doing physically demanding work, but our society says. You don't do anything but goof off. But we know better. And this is the work of the good shepherd here. He is laying down his life for the sheep. So when we think of the good shepherd, we should not think of a little shepherd boy kind of playing around with a little lamb. We should think of our watchman protector as he is presented, for example. Turn to Psalm 18. In Psalm 23, we read, the Lord is my shepherd. Listen to this shepherd, same Lord. Listen to this shepherd in Psalm 18. Verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered on the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, He sent from on high and took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. They were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out. Into a broad place he rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, they have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people. With the haughty eyes, you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, delights, lightens my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The way of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in them. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength, who made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer set me secure on the heights he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze you have given me the shield of your salvation your right hand supported me your gentleness made me great you have made you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip Pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. And they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. Made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife of the people. You made me the head of the nations. People I have not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. The exalted of the God of my salvation. The God gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. Who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you have exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. And sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. He shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. No one takes the life of the good shepherd. No one takes the life of the good shepherd. He lays it down of his own accord. The imagery that Jesus is laying out here for these who heard him proclaim that I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep is this from Psalm 18. It's not a gentle little shepherd boy. Yes, it is one who is good and kind and cares, but it's also one who protects and watches over. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In Psalm 18, however, God is very clearly victorious. I wanted to read that whole thing so that we are reminded that God is victorious in that. God is very clearly victorious. The earth trembles and rocks when, when God speaks. He didn't lay down his life in Psalm 18. It wasn't even a close fight. And that is the same truth here. Look at verse 18, John 10:18, when he says, "No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes the life of the good shepherd." He lays it down of his own accord. Why would he do that? Why would he lay down his life for the sheep? Well, the reason is because of that kind of second definition or second meaning behind that word for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in order to purchase the sheep with his own blood. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep in order to purchase the sheep with his own blood. The good shepherd lays down his life in order to redeem his own sheep. You will see this kind of wording throughout the scriptures in various forms. A phrase, something along the lines of a people for his own possession. To redeem for himself a people for his own possession. Several times as I have uh, preached here through John chapter 10, I've quoted Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. We've we've read that several times. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6, we find a very similar statement about the Lord. So Deuteronomy 7, 6, God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it's not because you are more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face, God says. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. For the sheep, he has chosen to assemble for himself a people for his treasured possession because of his great I am-ness, to make up a word. Because of his great, the Hebrew word is hesed, Because of his faithful, covenant, steadfast love. And yet, at this point in Deuteronomy, there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he's talking about their redemption from their slavery in Egypt. That's specifically what he is talking about. He has, he has redeemed them in a powerful and mighty way from their slavery in Egypt. But later in the Old Testament, he will go on to promise his scattered sheep. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 16, 17, and 18, God will promise his scattered sheep the, this. He's and the one who does not serve him. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In That day when he gathers his scattered sheep into his own treasured possession. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 3 here of John 10? The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He gathers them. This is what the what is prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, the sheepfold, the treasured possession, God's treasured possession, it's even bigger than anybody understood. It's bigger than anyone assumes. Look at what he says in verse 16 when he's talking about calling his own who who know him and he knows. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The apostles will go on to explain, Um, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How did that happen? How does it go from uh, the ancient Israelites... Those who are descendants of Abraham, how does that go to other sheep from other sheepfolds? It was his eternal plan. It was his eternal plan, Ephesians chapter 1. In him, we have, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And then Paul tells us in three different places that the church... Jews, Gentiles, those who have trusted in Christ are his treasured possession that the church was purchased with the price of the blood of Christ. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's why he tells uh, the under shepherds, the elders of, of the Um, church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 verse 28 he says to them pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood so when Jesus says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep he is telling them that he will purchase them with his own blood and this should be of great comfort to us because not only does the good shepherd see and protect, but we also belong to him. We belong to him body and soul. We were bought with a price. Almost, uh, almost 50 years after Martin Luther ignited the fires of the Reformation in Germany in the early 1500s, in the city of Heidelberg, a catechism was written to teach children the truths of Scripture. It was written to teach children. This is the first question that the kids would memorize. What is my only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him that I am not my own but I was bought both in life and in death belonged to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid down his life in order to redeem for himself a people for his own treasured possession to free us from slavery and to free us to righteousness. This really brings us to the importance of Christ's atonement for sins. In fact, this statement I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This statement is an incredibly important summary of the atonement, of the work of Christ on the cross. That Christ would say five times in here, I lay down my life. I lay down my life. And so on this side of the cross, where we are right now, on this side of Good Friday, on this side of Easter Sunday, this statement emphasizes, we can see, the centrality of the cross for the Christian life. The cross and all that the cross symbolizes is distinctive, and it is the central feature of Christianity. The truth that salvation is by the work of Christ alone in the atonement, in his atoning work on the cross. It was there at the very beginning of his life. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, we read, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. This is this mission, that he will save his people, that he will atone for their sins, this mission goes all the way through to the end of his life. Matthew 26, uh, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you for this is the my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins many churches and christians and preachers are uncomfortable with the cross um, i served in a church that would not have a cross on their property because they were afraid of the message it would send to unbelievers And so instead we preach often a gospel of pragmatism and gimmicks. But Paul emphasized the cross. He said in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, he says, far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And every preacher should say with Paul as he does, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But this wasn't something that was decided during Jesus' lifetime. This wasn't just decided here on the fly. He says in verse 18 that he he went to the cross voluntarily. It was popular for a while to call the atonement, um, Jesus' work on the cross, and even the concept of the atonement, to call it divine child abuse, as if God the Father sent the Son to his punishment against his will. But Jesus makes it very clear that he does this of his own accord, by his own authority, and the Father loves him for it. This was not plan B. This was not something that God came up with when he he couldn't find Adam and Eve in the garden, And, and he sensed maybe there was something wrong. See, the first hint of this plan a plan of redemption in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when God lays out this promise when he's speaking specifically to the serpent I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel but it goes back even before that the good shepherd laying down his life in order to redeem his own sheep for himself as a as a treasured possession that was God's plan from eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 lays this out pretty specifically. When Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That means before Genesis 1.1. That means before anything happened in Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3. Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. We call this plan the covenant of redemption. This is that agreement between the father and the son in eternity past to redeem for himself a people for his own treasured possession. John is telling us, or Jesus is telling us here in John chapter 10 that he and the Father came up with this covenant of redemption in eternity past. And that time was rapidly approaching when he would lay down his life for, when he would make an atonement for, in order to redeem the sheep. This was the charge that he had received from the Father, he says. And this, this redemptive atonement that we've been talking about all of this time. All of this kind of brings us to the third way that this for the sheep is used here. Of course, the second and third really tie together. But when Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep, it means that he does so in their place. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, the big words are, to be their vicarious substitutionary atonement. He lays down his life for the sheep as a a substitute for the sinners. Jesus Christ accepted the guilt that our sins deserved. For the wages of sin is death. He accepted the guilt that our sins deserved and he received in himself God's wrath in our place. Christianity teaches that salvation comes not by what we do for ourselves. Not by what even we might be able to do for God. Instead, the heart of the gospel is what God, through Christ Jesus, did for us on our behalf. Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Almost will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And if you have trusted in him for salvation, that means that he has called you by name. And he lays down his life to watch over and to protect you to redeem you as his own treasured possession and as a substitute on your behalf. And so we pray with the preacher of Hebrews as he closes that majestic sermon. He says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. When Jesus Christ says here, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays it down to protect, to oversee. He lays it down to purchase for himself a people for his own treasured possession. And he lays it down so that we might not die, so that we might not face God's wrath. So let's praise him. Father, as we think of these words um, over and over and over again, I lay down my life for the sheep. We see nothing but love here, care and tenderness we also see a majestic, holy, righteous God who speaks and the earth trembles, yet who made himself for a little while even lower than the angels, that he might redeem for himself a people for his own treasured possession, that he might go to the cross in our place to eternally protect us and call us his own. And so we praise our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name.